You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist in association with UBS. It's 1600 in Seoul, 9am in Gaza, 7am here at Midori House in London and 4am in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, could the US have brokered a pause in the Israel-Gaza war? There are reports of a deal that Israel could briefly stop its onslaught in exchange for Hamas releasing some hostages. Also coming up, Argentina sets itself up for a political earthquake. We'll examine what happens now that a TV celebrity turned libertarian outsider politician Javier Millet has been elected president. And the UN is asked to leave Sudan. What does this mean for the humanitarian crisis and the UN's long-term ability to help in times of desperate need? Plus, I'll be joined by Simon Brook for a look at the papers. Good morning, Simon. What have you spotted? Good morning, Emma. Yes, Al Jazeera is reporting that William Lai, the front-runner in Taiwan's presidential election, has named Hazao B. Kim, uh, the island's former envoy to the United States, as his running mate. So what does this mean for Chinese relations with Taiwan? And many of the papers are looking back at the life of Rosalind Carter, the former first lady of the US, who died yesterday. And can Jeff Bezos get away with a cowboy hat? while The Guardian has its doubts. Well, you certainly can. Thanks, Simon. We'll hear about that in the teeth of war as well. Ukraine keeps reading. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. So look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel says that members of the Yemeni rebel rebel Houthi group have seized a British-owned and Japanese-operated cargo ship in the southern Red Sea. Japan has carried out military drills on an island considered to be vulnerable to an attack by China. And tributes have been paid to Rosalind Carter, the wife of the former president, Jimmy Carter. She's died at the age of 96. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, this weekend, Reuters reported that Israel, the US, and Hamas are on the point of reaching a tentative agreement to free dozens of women and children held hostage in Gaza. It's in exchange for a pause in the fighting. The Washington Post reported that all parties would freeze combat operations for at least five days, while, and I quote, an initial 50 or more hostages were released. Meanwhile, it's becoming clearer that the war between Israel and Hamas is creating repercussions much further north in the conflict in Ukraine. In addition to the immediate diversion of attention away from Russia's invasion, Moscow's eyeing longer-term gains and the chance to sow further instability. Well, to tell us about uh, both subjects, I'm joined now by James Rogers, former BBC correspondent in Gaza and author of Headlines from the Holy Land, reporting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A very warm welcome back, James. Good morning. Good morning, Emma. So just tell us what we know about this tentative deal. It's been bubbling along under the headlines for about 48 hours now, but nothing seems to have been reported showing a breakthrough. 
No, I mean, one imagines this is a process that has been going on since the hostages uh, were first taken on October the 7th. And it's something that um, particularly Israel, of course, it's one of the main purposes of its military operation in Gaza is the freeing of those hostages. Very unlikely, of course, they can do that by purely military means. And it's always uh, likely, of course, there's going to be some sort of diplomatic process alongside that. Qatar and the United States, you've pointed out, uh, involved in that. But it does seem from media reporting as if there may be some uh, announcement close. But of course, um, in this, the tense, the, the tension of, of armed conflict that's going, such as going on in Gaza, then these things, of course, can often be dis derailed by what might seem a fairly small thing at fairly short notice. So presumably that's the reason why it's taken so long um, for the parties involved to get this far. Indeed. And, and, is, and is there any indication that either side would actually hold to their promise as well? Well, that's that's a very big question, of course. I mean, in, in all kinds of armed conflicts and all kinds of wars, you do see that once these deals are brokered, it's very difficult to hold them. Uh, very easy for one side to accuse the other of bad faith or of not keeping to it. So I think you know, from the Israeli point of view, from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's point of view, the picture that he wants to see is some or all of those hostages uh, being brought out with Israel having given little uh, in return. Uh, and, and, they, and, and that will be a major vindication of the huge military operation that Israel has launched on Gaza, causing, of course, so many civilian casualties uh, and so much concern around the world. The focus on uh, this weekend, as well as on this proposed agreement or, or pause or whatever it, it needs to be described as, is the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza. It, it began with the week, at the weekend with people being um, told that they had to evacuate the hospital, that they were told to move towards the sea, uh, that hospital staff were saying that this is just absolutely impossible. And it ended with the Israeli army releasing what it says are details of, of a tunnel shaft used by Hamas underneath the hospital. It very much came became the sort of focal point of everything that is dreadful about this war, wasn't it? Yes, it has. I mean, this is Gaza's, not just the main hospital in Gaza City, the main city of the Gaza Strip, but the main hospital for the entire territory. And of course, you know, targeting of hospitals uh, in war is something that armies say that they never do unless they've got clear military justification. Having decided to embark on this, Israel has needed to prove that it does have clear military justification. And the video that it's released, of course, is part of trying to do that. Of course, it's very, very difficult for those of us who aren't there to determine the veracity, authenticity of this video or otherwise. But it is clear that Israel has needed, after it's, it's decided to make um, the Shifa hospital a focus of a military operation, it has needed to prove some, to produce some kind of evidence to show that its claim that this was being used as a military position as well uh, was also true. Now, I think many people looking at this video, um, they probably, probably will not change so many minds. I mean, views on this conflict are so entrenched around the world. I think those people um, who understand and accept Israel's justification for launching this military operation on Gaza will largely be convinced that this is the proof that they were looking for. Those who are more concerned, and they are many, of course, by the growing civilian death toll in Gaza, will simply see that this may have emerged um, at a convenient time. I think one thing about this conflict around the world is it takes an awful lot to change people's minds about it. A lot of people, as we've seen uh, in the last month or so, really have got very strong opinions on it and are not unlikely to change them. And indeed, in terms of the, the journalistic reporting of it, the, the moment that this video was released and any 
journalist tried to report anything about it, it suddenly sparked an enormous global reaction, as you say, in, in the most divided manner, because um, Israel making Al-Shifa Hospital, as you say, the focal point of its operations, claiming that the hospital harbours a Hamas command centre. Hamas, as well as staff, have denied this is the case. It must make it nigh on impossible to report fairly on what, is, on, on what these often insubstantiated pictures are. Well, I guess it's not impossible to report fairly and in as much as it is impossible to come up with a version of events that's going to satisfy everybody. I mean, it's something that, you know, one of the conclusions that I drew from my own covering of the conflict um, back during the second Palestinian intifada or uprising against Israel and in my subsequent studies and writing about the reporting of the conflict, it is um, something that divides opinion like no other global issue. And therefore, it is almost impossible uh, for any reporter whoever they're working for to come up with a version of events that will not uh, draw criticism from one quarter or another because a lot of people have such strong opinions on it they're unlikely to be uh, altered or changed or shifted by anything they see in the media. James, let's move on to uh, another facet of this this conflict, the, the, the rather wider global repercussions of this one. Um, and let's look at the way that Russia is dealing with all this. I think there was a headline in the Sunday Times yesterday saying Putin is having his best month since Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, making an enormous contrast by the fact that before Hamas launched its attack on Israel and Israel uh, launched its response on Gaza, um, there were claims that Vladimir Putin was suffering from depression. Uh, someone else went further and said that he was dead and had been uh, taken over by a body double. Uh, now we are in a position where Moscow is, dare I say it, enjoying what has happened in Gaza. Well, Vladimir Putin has always been very good um, at seeing opportunity in the unpredictability of world events. And I think that's what Russia is trying to do at the moment. Russia is casting itself. Um, it's, of course, Russia's main international rival now and, and for some time now has been the United States. And the United States is a very firm ally of Israel. Russia has tried to play uh, and Israel and Russia have had an uneasy relationship in a way in the last couple of years. They haven't wanted to be outright rivals. Um, uh, and Israel has been a little cautious about its support for Ukraine, but they have eventually sent um, ammunition to Ukraine. And I think this is going to have longer term consequences for Russia's um, relationship with Israel. Um, although I was talking to a senior source to the Israeli military recently, um, and he was saying, you know, although we, Israel, that is, tried to navigate away between Russia and Ukraine, we have supplied Ukraine. Um, uh, and this is there, i.e. Russia's revenge in the fact that Russia is now, you know, you'll remember hosted a Hamas delegation in the couple of weeks after those horrific attacks on the Kibbutzim uh, and other targets um, around the Gaza Strip on October the 7th. Russia, of course, is working closely with Iran at the moment and Iran are Hamas's main sponsor. Russia, too, is keen to try to um, garner public opinion in the global south, um, in many parts of which people see the Israeli-Palestinian as a fairly conflict is a fairly straightforward one uh, in which the Palestinians are the injured party. So I think in lots of ways, um, and, and they're also trying to portray, you know, Western and European Union and United States double standards when um, they have been deeply critical of civilian casualties in Ukraine uh, and far less so in the Russian telling of civilian casualties in Gaza. There's been mentioned that Russia could be a peacemaker here, but all narrative suggests that actually instability is always something which Putin relishes. 
Yes, I mean, I think Russia would possibly like to see a, a role like that, but I can't see given the current state. However, um, this current war is going to be resolved. One would imagine that the United States will have a major part in it. Israel, of course, is one of the parties to the conflict, so they will have to be involved. And it's very difficult to see either the United States or Israel seeing Russia as any kind of honest broker at the moment, however much Russia may um, have good ties uh, with Iran and may be able to talk to Hamas. James Rogers, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's 7.12am uh, here in London, 4.12am in Buenos Aires. Now, Argentina has a new president and has set a course into the political unknown. The wildcard libertarian Javier Millet, self-described anarcho-capitalist, led a rowdy anti-establishment campaign. He wielded a chainsaw at rallies to symbolise his plans to drastically cut government expenses. He also wants to adopt the US dollar as Argentina's national currency. So what happens now? I'm joined in the studio by Professor in International Law and International Affairs at Birkbeck College uh, and Monocle Regular, Oscar Guardiola-Rivera. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Good to see you, Oscar. It's a pleasure seeing you. Right. What's just happened? What just happened? That's a very good question. In a word, desperation. Uh, That's what led uh, a uh, majority of uh, the Argentinian electorate to... uh, Uh, take a jump into the unknown. Probably they don't see it that way. The way they see it is uh, uh, that after 16 years of government by uh, the Peronista party, which has landed the country in a uh, terrible economic state with inflation soaring to up to a 164% per year, uh, the only uh, uh, choice was the irrational one, and that's exactly what they have done. So tell us a little bit about um, Javier Millet. Every time you mention him in conversation, someone seems to come up with a more and more outlandish trait that he seems to possess. I mean, it's not often that you, you say, oh, we have a new president in Argentina, and someone says, oh, yes, he's really into tantric sex. I mean, this is the kind of thing that makes your jaw drop when you think, my goodness, this is a leader of a major South American country. Absolutely. Uh, Argentina is the second largest uh, economy in South America. And you have a Mick Jagger impersonator, TV celebrity, tantric sex, uh, self-described libertarian who uh, uh, used to, uh, uh, you know, wield a chainsaw during his uh, campaign speeches, uh, perhaps to symbolize uh, the way in which he was going to cut down the size of the Argentinian state, which he uh, uh, remarked upon uh, yesterday during his victory speech. Uh, but uh, more ominously, he is uh, supported by a cadre of uh, uh, people who not only deny the uh, significance of uh, the human rights violations that took place during the uh, recent, fairly recent dictatorship in Argentina, uh, but also justify it. And that's what is uh, sending uh, chills throughout the Western Hemisphere. So we, we have this incredibly divided country now, didn't we? Because if, because let's just not forget Sergio Massa. Who was the, he was the man who has been helping to steer um, Argentina's disastrous economic um, world for, for several years now. He actually won the first round, didn't he? So you have a centre-left who many feel responsible for 
things like 133, 143% inflation. But then on the same time, you have this absolute wild card here. And both men have a negative image of around 50%. We have a country which is so deeply divided now. Uh, that, that's it. You got it, Emma. That's why I said, uh, you know, desperation, despair. Uh, you had a uh, choice between uh, the terrible candidate and uh, the, the bad candidate. So... Uh, Uh, it was it was a forced choice, a non-choice. Uh, uh, from the point of view of uh, many of my friends in Argentina, this was the only way to go. When you pointed out to them uh, all the problems and uh, the fact uh, that uh, this is such an uncertain choice, they would they would say yes. But the other the other option was uh, you know 16 years of uh, uh, economic, which landed us in economic misrule. That has to be recognized. Uh, the center left in Argentina has a Uh, you know, a self-reckoning uh, coming at them. and uh, But the problem is that the roots of these, uh, uh, of the economic uh, question are, go deeper. Uh, it isn't something that uh, a country, let alone a, uh, you know, a, a crazy, and I don't say it as an insult, uh, his nickname is El Loco uh, in Argentina, the crazy Millet, will, will be able to resolve. The very uh, idea of dollarization is hugely problematic in a country like Argentina. So we're looking at uh, the very real possibility of social unrest. Explain a little bit about this idea of dollarization. He wants to just basically adopt the dollar as, as the country's currency. Uh, not being seen in a country of that size before. How, how is he proposing that it would work and what would be the benefit? I wish I could explain it, Emma, but uh, not even Millet himself has been able to. In the, the last uh, uh, TV debate, uh, famously or infamously, he was totally unable to explain any of the policies he was uh, uh, proposing. In principle, the idea is that you peg your currency uh, to the US dollar, but he has also promised uh, to do away with the central bank. So you wouldn't have a central bank. Uh, you wouldn't have a clear measure of, uh, uh, you know, for, for floating your currency vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. And uh, the huge problem in Argentina is that Argentinian banks do not have enough dollars, which mean they, in case this happens, they will be given, uh, giving uh, uh, people less dollars, uh, you know, for the, the, the pesos they have. Politicians promise many things. Javier Millet has promised outlandishly extreme things. But do we think that in the cold light of day that hearts will cool and policies will cool? That's what uh, most people expect. Uh, but uh, this is a very different brand of candidate. I mean, if you if you thought Trump was, uh, you know, could be controlled by, uh, uh, you know, U.S. institutions, which, uh, dare I say, uh, may be thought of as uh, uh, stronger than uh, those uh, in Argentina, well, think again. We know uh, Trump was not uh, controlled uh, and it's very difficult to see that Millet will. Having said that, He has no majority in the Argentinian uh, Congress. He has very, very few provincial governors uh, on his side. So actually, it's going to be very difficult for him to govern. And, uh, as, you know, most, most analysts fear is that this will push him towards the kind of radicalism he has already espoused. What kind of situation are we now looking at in the wider continent, given the fact that we have, for example, in Brazil, uh, President Lula... Um, ousting Bolsonaro, who 
arguably is, is not necessarily cast from quite extremely the same mould as, as Millet, but there, you know, we could play, play a game of compare and contrast between the two yes. men. But we're looking here at major economies in South America now, which have this deep division 50-50. And the, the, the divisions are representative of two very extreme different, different points of view. Mm. What does this do for the wider geography? Well, look at us saying that Jair Bolsonaro is not as extreme. I mean, that says it all. Uh, it is very likely that uh, the uh, axis of uh, diplomacy and economics in Latin America will move. Indeed, it has already moved uh, to uh, uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, Mexico. These are the three countries which are leading the charge, and that charge is uh, towards uh, uh, unification. That will be uh, uh, much more difficult with Argentina in this case. It will be particularly complicated for Mercosur. Uh, in fact, Millet has uh, uh, already denounced, indeed insulted Lula as a surdo, which is a very despective term for a leftist and promised that he would not uh, engage in trade with either Brazil or China. Uh, you know, you, you, have to, you have to put to the side uh, your thoughts about, uh, uh, you know, the, the ideologies uh, driving those, these countries, which are not extreme, particularly in the case of Brazil, not, at all, not in the least. The problem is these are the two biggest uh, trade uh, partners of Argentina. So who is uh, Millet going to uh, sell uh, Argentinian soy uh, to? Uh, is, is, this is really, really complicated. Briefly, where have all the grown-ups gone? Where all well, they are parting. That's that's very clear. They are. We, we used to have this uh, graffiti in Colombia uh, during the height of the war. Uh, El mundo se derrumba y nosotros derrumba. The world is crumbling down and we go parting. Uh, where are the people? I mean, more seriously, there is plenty of despair, and we have not. Uh, we we're yet to find a political way to channel despair uh, into uh, rational choices. Oscar Guardiola Rivera, thank you as ever for joining me in the studio. Still to come on today's program, we hear from the CEO of Ecosia, a search engine that donates the majority of its profits to planting trees. We've already planted over 186 million trees, uh, which makes us the biggest tree planting organization on the planet, unfortunately, because there should be more tree planting organizations. And indeed, if we were as big as Google, we could reforest the entire planet. More from Christian Kroll a little later on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Time now to have a look at the newspapers on The Globalist. Joining me in the studio is a journalist and communications consultant, Simon Brook. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. Welcome back to the Monocle Radio studio. Um, before we go any further and look at the other stories, we've just had Oscar Guardiola Rivera in the studio talking about the quite 
the, the, the almost undescribable Javier Millet, uh, seizing power with a chainsaw and a promise to get rid of the central bank and a promise to, to introduce the, the dollar as Argentina's currency. Um, as a political strategist and a political mm. communications um, expert, if you haven't seen what this man looks like, <laughs> I mean, what would you be saying to him before he went out onto the stage? Well, we were just saying, weren't we, that he has a look of a, a 1970s British comedian <laughs> And there's a particular one we won't mention, but who was known as being particularly crass and sexist and rude. But yeah, it is. There's something about the hair. And I was thinking about this. Certainly in North America, neat hair is very important. OK, don't don't go into an election if you're a man or, or a woman, certainly a man, unless you have neat hair. Because if you if you can't manage your hair, how can you manage a country for four years or, or we, a state, We need to describe this being radio. Unfortunately, we need to describe Javier Millet's hair. Sorry, yeah, absolutely. It is pretty wild, isn't it? I have to say. I major think sideburns. Major sideburns. Huge uh, bouffon sort of hair that looks like he's just been dragged through a hedge backwards sort of thing. But I do think it's interesting, having said that normally in North America, you do need neat, understated, very controlled hair. Obviously, it may well be that Donald Trump returns to the the White House next year. And this is the man, probably the owner of the world's weirdest hairdo, isn't it? So obviously, it didn't do any harm to him when he last stood. And then in the UK, of course, we had uh, Boris Johnson, who had that, um, I'm just a bit of eccentric sort of crazy hair look. So I don't know, perhaps we are seeing a perhaps neat hair is out and crazy hair, uh, according to uh, crazy hair is back and, and Millet is, is one of just a number of politicians who's benefited from I'd, this. I'd like to see what, um, I don't know, Emmanuel Macron or, um, well, that's or, or Rishi hair. Sunak letting Smart their hair, hair down. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, there is a whole item to be done here on hair. I'm just thinking D- that Hair and diplomacy. <laughs> uh, yes, let's work on this for something for another day. Um, returning to the other news that, that you spotted in the papers, mm. um, we have some, we have movement in Taiwan in a in, in a sort of a huge diplomatic uh, sort of gesture, dare we say it, to China. Yeah, so exactly. So William Lai, who's the uh, front runner for the presidency in Taiwan's election, which takes place next year, has uh, named Hsiao B. Kim as uh, as his running mate, and and B. Kim is the uh, Hsiao, sorry, is the self-ruled island's former envoy to the United States. Um, Al Jazeera reminds us, um, Lai is the candidate for the governing uh, Democratic Progressive Party. And uh, as again, as Al Jazeera points out, he's the uh, leading in the opinion polls and the most likely to to win uh, in the election in January. The formal announcement of uh, Hassau's uh, uh, running mate status will be uh, announced this afternoon. But um, yeah, interesting, of course, the first thing you think about is the sort of uh, reaction from China. And that has been uh, predictably hostile. Um, China's already twice placed sanctions on Hsiao most recently in April and has called her um, an independence diehard. Uh, uh, China's Taiwan Affairs Office last week referred to Lao, Lai and Hsiao as uh, an independence double act um, and adding that uh, Taiwan's people were very clear about what the partnership means for the situation in the Taiwan Strait. So uh, the, the Chinese haven't elaborated beyond that, but um, it does look as if they're not very happy about this announcement. No, it, I mean, the, there are fears that the opposition could win the election. Um, so there is that... Um, if if it's if I think the the FT this morning is saying polls indicate the opposition could win the election if its candidates team up, but that Lai is likely to win the race if the opposition remains um, 
split, there is that that feeling that one wonders how much having this amazingly powerful diplomatic running mate could do actually to try and improve his chances. Yeah, it certainly looks like it will uh, boost those chances, exactly. Al Jazeera quotes um, Rupert Hammond Chambers, who's president of the US-Taiwan Business Council and has known Hassan uh, since the 1990s. He describes her as a formidable politician and he believes that she will add much-needed di- much diplomatic and, secure- and security heft to Lai's ticket. So she will certainly boost the chances of uh, Lai being uh, elected. But, of course, this adds to the tension and questions about, um, you know, when, uh, and it does look like when rather than if, China might um, unveil some um, action towards taking Taiwan back into uh, the Chinese fold and making it completely part of the country. Um, We're going to carry on with the phenomenally powerful men and their appearances game uh, this morning. You seem to have picked some stories for us. There's this brilliant interview in the Financial Times as Michel Barnier, the former EU Brexit negotiator. Yeah, so, uh, so for many, sorry, carry on. Yeah, and he arrives, sorry, just uh, don't, don't mean to yeah, interrupt you, yeah, Simon, it says Michel Barnier arrives carrying two folders full of paper, tall and debonair, the former Brexit negotiator knows the power of appearances. Here we go, we have a man who is phenomenally smart and uh, whose, whose motto to himself throughout the entire Brexit negotiations were he decided from the very beginning to be calm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he makes that point and he comes across very calm. I mean, he gets passionate um, about um, the the situation in Europe and um, he's very sort of dismissive of the way uh, the the UK tried to negotiate Brexit. I think it's interesting, you know, for many years he was a bogeyman for Brexiteers in the UK and it's interesting that uh, the FT quotes Nigel Farage who was, if uh, if you're interested in these things, of course he's going into the, the I'm a celebrity jungle but, but even Nigel Farage said I wish that Barnier was on our side but interesting as well that Barnier has sort of accepted that um, you know that, that that Europe has changed since um, the e the UK left it in 2016, and a sort of an acceptance in this article that one of the reasons why Brexit took place uh, was concerns about immigration, and and uh, you know that that drove the sort of populism agenda as well. And so the FT reminds us that Barnier argued for stricter controls on immigration when he was a centre-right candidate uh, in the uh, last year's uh, French presidential elections. And now he goes on to argue that the EU has changed, that it's hired 10,000 border guards and that it's used uh, joint borrowing to create a COVID recovery fund. He says the EU today is no longer the EU that the UK left. We have begun to draw the lessons of Brexit, which I think that last sentence, we've learned lessons from Brexit, is very interesting. And it was this amazing ability that he had was to keep all 27 member states together and unified during these Brexit negotiations. It suddenly made the United Kingdom look incredibly weak, didn't it? Well, it did, exactly. And it's interesting because this you know, he makes the point during during this interview that that he knew that the UK would try and drive a wedge between especially France and Germany but one of the things that uh, Barnier and his team did was to dive in there straight away and and remind the uh, the other 27 members that they would have to be unified and um, he kept them on side and the other thing that came came across here from this interview is just the preparation you know he was he was preparing months before um, the negotiations began with pulling together his team developing a strategy so you know a class a classy politician who was well ahead in the game now let's talk class we've had uh, the 
comedian lookalike, but clearly highly volatile character who's just taken over the presidency in Argentina, uh, Javier Millet. We have uh, Michel Barnier turning up looking neat as a pin. We have Jeff Bezos, though, in vogue, wearing a cowboy hat with his girlfriend, uh, Lauren Sanchez, with the biggest set of guns I've ever seen on a woman. I mean, her shoulders look like she goes into a boxing ring regularly. She's and she, Both seem to be sort of powerhouses, but you want to talk about the hat. Well, I want to talk, well, I, only because the Guardian newspaper is talking about the hat and other people are as well. So Jeff Bezos is wearing a cowboy hat in this uh, in this shot, which was taken for the Vogue interview, which uh, his fiancée, Lauren Sanchez, uh, did with the magazine. And, yes, yeah, um, a lot of discussion about whether the world's third richest man, and, you know, let's face it, he's a tech geek. He is not a, a cowboy. Can he wear a cowboy hat? Um, uh, and it's quite interesting sort of, you realise actually there's a lot of, this, cowboy hats appear a lot in politics you know um, the paper points out that um, Ronald Reagan gave Mikhail Gorbachev um, a, a cowboy hat as a gift even very though smart apparently, very smart one very smart one which Gorbachev one. apparently put on back to front but whoops some, some advisor should have flipped it around the right, right way around uh, uh Elon Musk, another very, very wealthy, uh, you know, tech nerd, whatever, recently wore a Stetson at the US-Mexico border and looked so goofy, according to The Guardian, that people accused him of having it the wrong way around as well, even though apparently he didn't. So hats are quite important in politics and business. Um, You just have to choose the right one. Thank you very much indeed for that, Simon. Uh, There's a line in the paper that says it looks like a sprinkler head because Bezos is five foot seven. Um, You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist with me. Emma Nelson. The time here in London is just nudging 7.33. Let's have a look at the headlines. Israel says members of the Yemeni rebel Houthi group have seized a British-owned and Japanese-operated cargo ship in the Southern Red Sea. Israel's described it as an Iranian act of terrorism with consequences for international maritime security. The Houthis say the ship is Israeli. Japan has carried out military drills on an island considered to be vulnerable to an attack by China. The exercises on the southwest island of Tokunoshima have been held amid tensions with neighbours China, Russia and North Korea. And tributes have been paid to the wife of the former president, Jimmy Carter, Rosalind Carter, who's died at the age of 96. Jimmy Carter, who's 99, said, Rosalind was my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished. She gave me wise guidance and encouragement. The Carters are the longest married presidential couple wedding in 1946. And unlike many previous first ladies, Rosalind Carter sat in on cabinet meetings and represented her husband on foreign trips. And those are the headlines on Monocle Radio. Now, with wars in Gaza and Ukraine occupying many of the world's headlines and much of the attention of government's foreign departments, it's arguably easier to overlook the crisis and ongoing conflict in Sudan. But it's now been seven months since fighting broke out between the Sudanese army and its rival paramilitary rapid support forces. An estimated 10,000 lives have been lost and a further 20 million people are facing food insecurity and 6 million are on the brink of famine. Well, now Sudan has even asked UNITAMS, the UN dedicated political mission in Sudan to leave, citing ineffectiveness. Well, I'm joined on the line now by the founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting, a pan-African consulting company, Tara O'Connor joins me. A very good morning to you, Tara. Good morning. So just explain to us what is going on here with Unitams being told to leave. Well, I think this is 
just a um it's a, a negotiating ploy to which the UN has responded very quickly and i think tensions have been rising for a little bit uh, i think very recently the existing UN special forces rep at uh, the UN special representative Volker Perthes was also effectively sacked by the Sudanese uh, ruling transitional council for alleged bias. And so this is, I think, the um, this is all uh, background to the negotiations that are going on um, in Jeddah that are led by the US, backed by the US and by the Saudis. Um, but, you know, what's been quite interesting is that over the weekend, uh, the UN response, responded pretty promptly and appointed a new Algerian, um, uh, uh, you know, special envoy who will actually pick up the pieces and take the mandate, the UN mandate in Sudan forward. Um, just tell us a little bit more about this. This is an Algerian diplomat, Ramtane Lam Mamra. Um, yes. How? Who is this? Who is this? Um, this character, and how much difference will he now be able to make? Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's very difficult. I certainly don't think that he will be able to pull the belligerent parties back from the conflict that seems to be now based around them both gaining their, you know, gaining positions and strengths. But certainly, you know, he's Algerian. He's a very, he was the former foreign minister of Algeria. He actually has great deal of experience in actually dealing in conflict zones he was the special envoy, the UN special envoy to Liberia, which you remember at the that was a very successful conclusion to a very long-standing conflict, and um, which has maintained has continued to be stable. But I don't think Sudan is there yet. Um, you know, I think um, what we've seen recently is that the rebel, um, uh, the rapid support forces have taken control of Darfur. As you mentioned, there are nearly six million people that have been on the move that are displaced. And really, the government action, the government, uh, the ruling transitional council's attack on the UN is, in effect, a, you know, a, from a position of weakness. They are actually have lost ground. They've lost um, a, a very important a garrison town in, the, in Darfur. And so are really, I think this is a measure of lashing out. But the UN has responded uh, extremely quickly, appointed someone new, and that is actually a hopeful sign. Tell us a little bit if that is going to be enough to, to help here. I mean, given the fact that the, the Sudanese ultimately need to sort this problem out by themselves, and with, with seven months in and so many lives lost, yes. is the, the, the appointment of a new envoy actually going to make any marked difference? I, I'm not very hopeful. Um, I think we've got too much activity from proxies. You know, at the moment, we know that it's in, you know, we've got a lot of outside um, activity. You've got the UAE, uh, the United Arab, Arab Emirates that are actually supporting, providing military and, and medical support to the, you know, the the rebels, the old Janjaweed um, militia that have taken control of Darfur, as I mentioned. Um, you've got the old regime, the Islamist regime, which is uh, from the ousted um, 
the ousted old regime trying to take control of the armed forces. And so I think we're at a position where everybody is positioning around talks, um, but the belligerents are not in a position to give up, uh, to give up and really sit down and talk about a ceasefire. I could be surprised, but I doubt it. And let's always remember at this point that both of these belligerents have actually totally ignored the third party in these uh, in the potential talks, which are the civilian and political um, groupings who are having separate talks in Addis Ababa um, around what a democratic Sudan would look like. And they seem to be very much left out in the cold. And obviously, they are the lost, they're the lost opportunity for Sudan. Tara O'Connor, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. a.m. in Kyiv, 7.40 a.m. here in London. Now, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and indeed dating back to its annexation of Crimea in 2014, almost all of Ukraine's literature has been destroyed. Cultural wars are often one of the most effective ways of wearing down a nation's soul. And Russia is very good at it, too, with the ability to control what people read, hear and watch, dating back to the Soviet era. But charities and literary campaigners are fighting back. And Daniel Gorman, director of English Pen, joins me on the line now to tell us why. A very good morning to you, Daniel. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So let's just be clear. The areas that Russia controls of Ukraine and has annexed since nineteen since 2014, the, the, the amount of Ukrainian literature is what? It's been, it's been decimated. It has indeed been decimated, yeah. And we've seen that there's been systematic targeting of literature and Ukrainian literature across these areas. Um, but then also more broadly, since the full-scale invasion in February last year, there has been specific targeting of libraries to try and really wipe out that intellectual and cultural hub and heart that a library provides of a community. And that's why we, alongside our incredible partners in Penn Ukraine um, and Penn International, uh, decided that we wanted to try and work together to try and support these brave libraries, these brave librarians that are working in these most impossible contexts. And we were really delighted to develop a partnership with BookAid International, who now have a direct partnership with Penny Ukraine. How do you to go try and push back against this? Essentially, Daniel, how do you go about this? Do you literally have to smuggle books in? Well, no. The good news is we've got this wonderful partnership with BookAid International, who do this all over the world. As in, they have they have connections with publishers in the UK, and publishers step up and support BookAid to to um, bring books to libraries and cultural and educational infrastructure around the world. And so it was really fortuitous at at last year's London Book Fair, actually, is where the conversations began um, to connect Penn Ukraine and the the directorship and the leadership of Penn Ukraine with people from BookAid and the the wonderful um, leadership there to, to have this conversation about how do we get books in? And so they have the experience, you know, the long experience of doing this in very challenging contexts. And our our partners at Penn Ukraine have the connections with the libraries, are already doing the consultations with them. And so it's a case of literally bringing uh, containers full of books into Ukraine. Um, They're coming in in various different ways, but they have now actually made the journey. They left on the 7th of November from, from London. And 25,000 books have now been sent as part of that. What kind of books are going there? So... 
what we have access to here, obviously, is English language books. And so we had a lot of long conversations uh, behind the scenes in developing the project as to what would be useful. Now, obviously, Ukrainian literature is the most useful thing, and that is what has been targeted. But there's such a keen interest and desire from young people, but actually all people across Ukraine to engage with the world and to have access to English language books. So the books that are coming from the UK are English language books. Tell us a little bit more about the, the, the cultural importance and significance of literature in Ukraine. I mean, we, we did an item a couple of weeks ago about the uh, the poet, the work of the poet Taras Shevchenko, a 19th century poet, who is in, in many ways seen as a sort of the father of the Ukrainian nation through his astonishingly powerful poetry. Russia has uh, decided to use AI to disseminate um sort of rewritten pretend Shevchenko poetry. And this has gone deeply to the heart of Ukraine, hasn't it? This is a country which, despite being in absolute daily catastrophic situations, is a very determined place when it comes to intellectuals. Um, I would wholeheartedly concur with that. And I mean, there's, I suppose there's two parts to the question. One is about why literature is being targeted, and we, and we can talk about that. But also the the literary and the and the cultural heart of Ukraine beats strongly and continues to beat. Um, and I mentioned Penn Ukraine earlier. It's a very active center. Penn has over 130 centers around the world who are all really incredible. Um, uh, and anyone listening to this from outside of the UK or indeed inside the UK, please do feel free to look up your local Penn center. But Penn Ukraine, throughout all of this horrendous conflict, have stayed strong, have stayed very active, have had new members join. Um, so the, the the recognition of the need for a continuing and, uh, and as much as can be thriving cultural infrastructure in the time of this conflict and in the time of the Russian invasion is, is remarkable. Um, and I think it was really testament to the the literary and cultural history of the country, as you described it. Daniel Gorman, Director of Penn England, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk economy and trade with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. She joins me on the line. Welcome back, Vicky. Thank you. Good morning. Right. Um, let's start with uh, the goings-on in open AI. It's breaking news that there is uh, a new... Interim uh, CEO, Emmett Shear. Um, if you could just bring us up to date with that, please. Well, there was a lot of speculation over the weekend as to whether, in fact, the, the changes that we uh, thought were happening, uh, with some old man going, uh, and also his co-founder, um, were going to be reversed. So uh, Mr. Oldman was seen in the building, apparently, with a guest pass. And uh, there were suggestions, perhaps, that um, because Microsoft and others, uh, who, of course, are very heavily involved in uh, in owning um, OpenAI, because they've invested heavily in it, uh, we're going to also think, uh, think about changing the board. All sorts of speculations that there would be some new arrangements. But actually, uh, what seems to be happening for the moment, at any rate, is that the board has reconfirmed that they're parting company. Um, and uh, Sam Altman seems to be 
uh, trying to get into new ventures, trying to get money into some some new areas that he wants to start investing in. So so it's all very very confusing up to that point. But what it does suggest is that there is a serious issue with AI, uh, and one of the issues at the core, I think, of this disagreements had to do with whether you know AI, as we begin to understand it now. Uh, with its possible destructive nature, can be allowed to work, you know, without huge regulation or or some some uh, stops there in terms of the development, or whether we continue to see it as what it should be, which is uh, something to help, uh, you know, push things forward in terms of the ability of people to use it in a productive way. And how much will such a decent, unstable situation at the top of open AI um, be reflected in the way that AI is used and indeed governed? I think there's going to be an awful lot of scrutiny now uh, because you know the, the disagreements have been also with the chief scientists in the company and and that is a very important part given that we had Elon Musk who was very originally of course involved in in the setting up of all this as a sort of charity a non non not for profit uh, you know uh, outfit that was going to be pursuing all these areas um is uh, I mean the regulators are going to be quite concerned about whether companies private private companies because Microsoft now of course is so involved and and one bit of the whole operation is profit making is meant to be um, are um, uh, moving towards sort of developments in AI which could be very very dangerous and whether we could leave it to private companies to make the decisions on on which way they go and I think that's going to be important for the company itself of course it was about to raise some more funds um, so it's uh, problematic and, and I'm sure the investors will be quite concerned. Uh, let's turn to the United Kingdom uh, the autumn statement um, it's, it's a budget in any other name isn't it and it's coming this week and we've already had clues from the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt that he intends to uh, cut some of the taxes um, some are saying in a rather cynical way to a appeal to to certain voters yes well it's interesting when you look at the uk because uh, it claims on the one hand to be doing you know rather better than some of its european neighbors because it's uh, at least it's it flatlined over the last quarter whereas a number of countries in europe um have been in decline so particularly germany of course which is in recession um but there is big push to do something about growth. Um, what the government's priorities have been is one to reduce inflation, halve it, which has been achieved because of energy prices coming down, nothing to do with what the government did, or even the Bank of England, frankly. And, the, and one of the others was to stimulate growth, and that isn't happening. So the emphasis is on seeing whether you know growth can be pushed um, somehow. But of course, there is also politics. Uh, we're having an election within a year, probably, and uh, there is uh, concern among particularly the right wing of the Conservative Party that not enough has been done on the tax front because, of course, taxes have been going up rather than coming down, which is very anti-conservative. So we may hear quite a lot about that. So ways to stimulate growth with investment incentives for businesses and other um, tinkerings, if you like, uh, which may be announced. And then the question of what do you do on the tax front, which is going to be very, very important. And uh, will there be any room to do any tax cuts? There seems to be a little bit because inflation has pushed up both income uh, receipts because of the way that the system, the tax system works with freezing on personal allowances, a lot more money coming in. Uh, and also VAT, uh, because obviously um, with higher prices, the 20% you get on VAT is a lot more. And uh, spending has not been going up that much. So there is a bit of headroom there and big push to cut taxes. But you're quite right. 
it feels like a budget very much so because basically we have no not much time until the election to have an impact finally uh vicky you have the delightful task of being explained to being having to uh, explain oil prices in less than a minute yes well oil prices of course uh you know had had supposedly uh, been meant to go up quite significantly when the beginning of the um, problems in the Eastern Mediterranean started. Uh, but then, of course, um, we've seen them come down again. So the question now is, uh, will Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC Plus do something to uh, push prices up again? And the expectation seems to be that they're going to continue with the price, uh, with sorry, with the production cuts that they had announced some time ago to the end of this year and, and extend them to 2024 and possibly cut more. Vicky Price, you did it in 30 seconds. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist. We're live on Monaco Radio. And the reason I cut Vicky so impolitely short is because last week the city of Lisbon played host to the world's largest technology conference, Web Summit, bringing more than 70,000 attendees to the Portuguese capital for the event. With climate crisis in full focus, there were plenty of entrepreneurs, founders and investors who were committed to green technology and working on sustainable solutions. One of them was Christian Kroll, the CEO of Ecosia, a search engine that donates 80% of its profits to planting trees around around the globe. Since the company was founded in 2009, it's planted more than 180 million trees worldwide and is working with cities to help them increase their tree canopy. Well, Monocle senior foreign correspondent Carlotta Ribello caught up with Christian at the Web Summit and she began by asking him how the idea for Ecosia came about. During my studies, I already had a small website, which was basically comparing different financial service providers and I was earning a commission if somebody signed up for those service providers. And what I realized that most of the revenue I was generating, I was actually giving directly back to Google. <laughs> so I realized Google apparently had a very clever business model. And I thought, what if there was a Google that actually existed or used all of its profits to help people, to help protect ecosystems and to fight the climate crisis? And I found that nothing like that existed, so I thought, why not create it? And basically started Ecosia as a search engine that plants trees. That was in 2009. So since then, a lot of things have happened. In the beginning, we were like we didn't have any funding or anything like that. It was really, let's say, a tough journey in the beginning. Let's say for the last three or four years, it's really become, I would say, more and more adopted. And uh, by now, we have millions of people using us every day. And we've already planted over 186 million trees, uh, which makes us the biggest tree planting organization on the planet, unfortunately, because there should be more tree planting organizations. And indeed, if we were as big as Google, we could reforest the entire planet. So that's, that's my goal, hopefully at some point. Now, one of the things that's interesting about uh, Ecosia is that, of course, this is a global company with global reach. Um, unfortunately, the issue of deforestation and lack of greenery is global, but so is the solution. So talk to me about, I guess, the regions where that impact has had. I know that uh, in the beginning there was a lot of focus on Brazil, of course, because we know the deforestation that's happening there in the Amazon. But that has expanded beyond mm. just there, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we, I think we are basically planting all around the world. Um, with a focus on developing countries in the tropics because there the problem is biggest and also the opportunity is biggest to reforest. But I mean, we've 
planted trees in London. <laughs> so uh, especially cities need need trees as well. Uh, we also have a tree planting project in Spain, so not so far away from here. We also we consider ourselves also a marketing department for trees because trees are good for so many things. They can uh, not only solve the climate crisis, but also basically make the soil fertile, make the water cycle more stable. Like there are so many benefits. And uh, also just for humans, they, they feel better if there are trees around. So we, we just want to make sure that as many trees are planted as possible because our, our planet is really suffering from not having enough trees. Well, you mentioned there are cities, and of course, uh, cities do really feel that, you know, urban heat island effect and uh, what the lack of greenery and of a tree canopy really, how it can impact people's lives. Are you engaged in conversations with local governments, municipalities to adopt Ecosia to uh, actually help promote some of this change in the way cities think about their greenery? Yeah, this is actually indeed uh, happening in both ways. So there are a lot of cities that, for their employees, they basically changed uh, this default search engine to Ecosia, which is great. Um, then also we are collaborating with a few uh, cities to actually do tree planting in those areas. I mean, we can't reforest all cities on this planet. That would be too much. But, for example, uh, in London, we have, and also in the United States, we have a few uh, city tree planting projects. And what is interesting is that You see also if you have trees in an area, also actually like health and uh, well-being of the people really improves. So I think once we communicate that to cities, they, they also see the benefit and then more and more of that is, is happening. And actually even in our hometown uh, in, in Berlin, uh, we started a referendum that, um, I mean, it's still going to need a few years, but we hope that by 2025 with the next election in Germany, citizens of Berlin will be able to vote for more trees in their city. That's going to be super important because already now people can feel that in summer it's it's more hot than it used to be. And then also there are like huge rain events where the entire city is flooded and trees help with both those problems. And they're also just beautiful. So that's something that we're that we're also supporting. Um, so this referendum, interestingly, gets support from the entire spectrum of uh, of voters so there's let's say the left that is interested in that there's the green party that is interested in that but also in germany we also have far right parties even those uh, the voters of those uh, parties like this idea because everybody loves trees so we think that uh, if a government a local government a city suggested that they want to have more green or more trees in general there will be very very little resistance to that if, if i was a mayor of a city i would I would suggest, suggest that right away. Do you find that in other cities that's still a tough thing to sell or not really? Yeah, probably. I think there's some, I mean, different cities uh, have, let's say, different priorities. I think many cities still think that just economic growth is the most important thing. But I think ultimately citizens will decide with their feet where they want to live. And I think people, like we're humans, we're we part of nature. We want to be in nature and I think people just don't feel comfortable if they're in a street just with skyscrapers and no nature and I think more and more cities will realize that and then they will have to compete for basically being the greenest city and people who are not good at that competition will lose citizens or be just less less comfortable to live in. And that was Christian Kroll, who's from Ecosia. He was talking to our senior foreign correspondent Carlotta Ribello at the Web Summit in Lisbon.
And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to our producers, Isabella Jewell, Monica Lillis and Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. Uh, what we will be hearing about then is, well, Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be talking to us about the election of Javier Millet, elected as Argentinian president and throwing uh, a very large cat among the pigeons uh, in the South America. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening.